Scripture reading for today is from Romans 4, verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How, then, was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gene. All right, Romans 4 is uh, where we are today. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we need your grace to understand truths that for many of us are not necessarily new, but we tend to lose them in terms of their significance and daily impact in our lives. So would you help me today to make this passage clear and plain and help our people um, to believe, to believe in you. Some maybe for the first time and others in ways that they just need to be reminded today that, that you have to believe. And so would you show us that today from Romans chapter 4. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation changed the trajectory of the course of Christianity forever. Led by Martin Luther, um, a number of church leaders desired to bring reformation to the church by recovering the essence of the gospel. It was not that the reformers in the Protestant Reformation discovered faith alone through grace alone through Christ alone. It was that they reclaimed it. As a result, there were five beliefs that came out of the Protestant Reformation. They're often called the five solas. And they are sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, and sola deo gloria, to God be the glory. And what the Reformers did was to reclaim the gospel out of what had become a works-based system of Christianity. And what's remarkable is that whether it's collective 
groups of people in churches or whether it's individuals, we tip towards a works-based understanding of righteousness. Our natural inclination is not towards a belief in faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Our natural inclination is toward a works-based righteousness such that we could stand before God and act as though we earned our own salvation, or we could size ourselves up with other people and think that somehow we're better than others. When the gospel truly understood, the gospel meaning faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, is embraced and disseminated, it changes everything. It changes an individual's heart. It can change a marriage. It can change a family. It can change a single adult in your perspective on life. It changes what you do in a community. It changes what happens in a nation. And it changes what happens around the world. This idea of the gospel of faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone, has revolutionary power. In fact, there's some of you here today that I hope that today would be the kind of day when you see and experience that revolutionary power, that something within you today clicks and you realize that's what I need to believe. Romans 4 is Paul's most thorough explanation of the connection between belief and faith and righteousness. He gives us a in-depth summary of what it means for faith to create righteousness or belief to create righteousness. And so today I want to show you his premise and then walk you through what he does with the past and how he uses David, Abraham, or Abraham, David, and circumcision to illustrate or to prove his point and then show you what is the purpose of all of this. So the outline is the premise, the past, and the purpose, all under the banner of the fact that this gospel of faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone has revolutionary power. The premise. It's not new that faith not works, creates righteousness. Chapter 4 and verse 1 begins with two words, the words, what then? And that follows what has come in chapters 3 and chapters 2 and chapters 1. This idea of faith creating righteousness or belief creating righteousness is not a new concept. In fact, go back to chapter 3 and verse 23, and you'll see that it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there it is in chapter 3. And then it's also in chapter 3 and verse 28. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So this premise that faith, not works, creates righteousness is not a new idea. What Paul is doing is trying to set up this really important contrast. And this contrast, listen to me, makes the difference between heaven and hell. This, 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 this distinction, this contrast makes the difference between someone being a child of God or being an enemy of God. And the distinction, the contrast, is between a works-based understanding of righteousness and a faith-based, grace-based, belief-based understanding of what righteousness is all about. Look at verse 4 and 5. Here where Paul very clearly identifies his premise. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
You might think it odd if your employer says, happy birthday, here's your weekly salary check. What? I earned that. So the wages that you have are that which you are due. And Paul is saying that verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And his point here is that righteousness doesn't come to us by our works. Otherwise, our relationship with God would be such that he would owe us salvation, thereby putting him in our debt. Romans 4 is Paul's explanation of what faith, not works, means in terms of our righteousness. You see, if our working for our righteousness were to be the way that God were to work, it would mean that we could stand before him and have something to boast about, or we could say, in effect, to him, look what I did, when the reality is everything about the gospel and everything about grace is about what God did. The problem, though, is as human beings... Our natural bias and our tilt is towards this works-based mentality, to live by performance and not by promise. It is to take credit for things that we shouldn't take credit for. And you know, I know, what we would do if salvation were dependent on us and we could earn it, we would think ourselves to be God. My daughter Savannah just completed a little gymnastics class, and every few weeks or so, parents are invited to come and observe. And so from a long distance away, I got to kind of watch her do her little gymnastics thing. And closer to where I was standing were a bunch of really, really small kids, like, I don't know, three years old, maybe. And they were trying to teach these small kids how to do various things like tumbling and, you know, so, and somersaults, it tells you how much I know about gymnastics, those are the same thing, aren't they? Cartwheels, you know, things of that sort. And look, three-year-olds barely can do a somersault, barely do a cartwheel. I mean, it just was really, it wasn't, wasn't good gymnastics at all. It's just, let me just be honest, okay? But, but they're not there for skill set, right? If your kid was in the class, I'm sure they're wonderful, but the rest of the class, not so much, okay? But at the end of every little routine that they would do, no matter how bad the somersault, no matter how bad the cartwheel, no matter how unrounded the roundoff wasn't, the instructor would say, now, now get up and go, ta-da! And so these little kids would be just crushing a somersault, like like not doing it well at all, flopping all over, but they all could get up and go, ta-da, ta-da. And I'm watching this going, see, that's wrong, that's what's wrong with humanity right there, right? No matter no matter how bad we do, no matter how much we mess up, no matter how ridiculous we act, we still have this thing of going, ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. And the problem with works-based righteousness is that whether it's in front of a mirror, or whether it's in front of our peers, or whether it's in front of God, there is a relentless passion to say, ta-da, look what I did. And as you heard last week as Pastor Nate unpacked 
the connection between the exclusion of boasting and faith that creates righteousness. So here we see that Abraham and David in circumcision are going to show us that God's plan is to magnify himself, not us. And that a works-based understanding of righteousness defeats the very purpose of the gospel, which is to make much of God and to make him the tada, not us. So the premise is faith, not works, creates righteousness. Now what Paul does is he gives three illustrations of that from the past. Abraham, David, and circumcision. Each of them with significant historical context for the people to whom he is writing. The first illustration is that of Abraham. He is, after all, the father of the Jewish people. He was incredibly revered as a model of godliness and righteousness. In fact, at the time of Paul's writing the book of Romans, Abraham was so highly regarded that many Jewish rabbis believed and taught that Abraham was justified by his obedience. Not by faith, but by obedience. In fact, one Jewish um, midrash non-canonical book, the book of Jubilee says this, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So what Paul does is he uses Abraham as a example in order to both dispel the widely held and incorrect view that Abraham made himself righteous by being righteous. And he uses one of the most respected figures in Israel's history in order to drive home this point that faith is the means by which righteousness comes, not works. So he introduces Abraham into the argument in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. There's it is. There's the the, the tada. He has something to boast about, but not before God. So what Paul is essentially saying here is this, that if Abraham was indeed declared righteous by what he did, then he would have something by which he could boast in front of God. But we know that no one can boast in front of God, so how do we reconcile that? That's that's the issue that Paul is raising, and he's creating this tension. How, how can How do we reconcile Abraham's righteousness and the exclusion of boasting? His answer is brilliant. He points back to Scripture in verse 3. It says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What he does here, it's beautiful. He appeals all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. All the way back into the book of Genesis. Abraham had a special place in God's plan for redemption. At the time, he was called Abram. He was called out of the land of Ur. If you're not familiar with the story, God called him and he became the father of the Jewish people. And as he calls him out of the land of Ur, God gives him an amazing promise. It's in Genesis 12 and verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that's the promise that God gives to Abram. That's chapter 12. In chapter 15, God appears to Abram again and reiterates this same covenant. However, the problem is that Abram and his wife Sarah are childless. And so Abram doesn't understand, how are you going to fulfill this promise since I have no child? How, how is that promise ever going to be fulfilled? And Genesis 15, God gives this promise to Abram. He brought him outside and said to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And yet Abraham, Abram at this point has no child. He has no child by which this promise would be fulfilled. And yet, despite any tangible evidence of how God's promise would be fulfilled, Genesis 15, 6 says, and Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So understand what happened. God made a promise. Abraham believed in God's promise. He took God at his word. He believed the promise of God and God counted that to him as righteousness. Belief creates righteousness. Now this raises the question, so how how were Old Testament saints saved? That's a good question. It's a complicated answer. Let me try and just summarize it for you this way. Within each season or dispensation of biblical history, there is a, a growing revelation pointing towards a coming Messiah. And it's in a very um, elementary form here in Abraham. It becomes more clear with Moses and the sacrificial system, becomes even more apparent during the David and the monarchs, and becomes even more apparent during the time of the major and minor prophets. But throughout the history of Israel, people had to believe the promises of God. And so Old Testament saints are saved the same way that you are. And that is that they believed God's promise. They were on the the, the front end, if you will, of the cross and the coming Messiah. We're on the back end. But the fact of the matter is when you come to faith in Christ, what you do is you put your faith in the promise of God. What is the promise of God? The promise of God sounds like this. To all who receive him who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So when you receive Christ, what you are in effect doing is you are believing the promise of God's word, that we are sinners, that God is holy, that Jesus came and died, and he'll take Christ's death and he'll count it for you and take your sin and put it on him. The Bible promises that. And so you're putting your faith in Christ, which means you're putting the faith, your faith in the promise of God about Christ. See? So it is that... Abram, or Abraham, is counted righteous by his belief. Old Testament saints believed in the promises of God, looking forward to the coming Messiah. New Testament saints believe in the promise of God, looking back. Why is Paul talking about Abraham? He's talking about this because belief is what God counts as righteousness, not works. 
Not works. It's belief. Putting your trust in God's work, in His promise, in believing in Him. So Paul wants to elevate the idea of belief in Romans chapter 4. And we'll see why at the end. Look at verse 5. To the one who does not work, but trusts in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. So, having used the example of of Abraham, that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Paul then says, in effect, to the one, meaning us, who does not work, but who trusts in Him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. So he connects the faith of Abraham to the way in which people are still saved even today. The essence of what Paul is trying to say here is that believing in the one who justifies is the means by which a person is counted righteous. So if you're here today and not a follower of Jesus, you need to know that you become a follower of Jesus. You become a Christian, not by what you do, not by your works, not by your actions, not by your activity, not by joining a church, not by being baptized, but rather by putting your trust in God's work, by putting your faith in Him, in His work, not your own. That's Abraham. David is the other example. The Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13. And yet, in the second half of David's life, he had a colossal failure. 2 Samuel 11, we find the sordid tale of David's adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, his attempt to cover up a pregnancy that came because of that adultery, and then eventually his plan and the execution of that plan to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in order to cover up his sin and what had happened. David is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and after he bears some significant consequences for his sin, he writes Psalm 32, which was a reflection on God's mercy to him. You see, God could have killed David because of his failure. But he didn't. There were still consequences for his actions. But David still, even in those consequences, received mercy. Verse 6. He now uses David. Just as David also speaks, so he's going to talk about the same kind of thing that he talked about with Abraham, but in a different way. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So here's another angle on this. And the angle is verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So it's not just that Abraham believed God and he was counted as righteous. But David is now talking about, on the other end, what happens when you blow it and God still is kind to you and merciful to you and counts you as righteous even though you clearly are not. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count 
his sin. That word count is a very important word. The word count means, like you would think of it in in English, same thing in the Greek, to, to take a record of, whether positively or negatively. But the reason why that word is important is because we just heard that word in verse 5. Put your finger on verse 8 on the word count, and then go up to verse 5 and put your finger on the word count. Verse 8, it sounds like this, to whom the Lord will not count his sin, but in verse 5, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here is the beautiful two-sided aspect of God's grace. It is in the first case, as with Abraham, that through faith God counts us as righteous, when we in fact are not. But the other side of grace that is so beautiful is that God does not count our sins against us even though he should. It's unbelievable. Either side of God's grace, both are unbelievable. That God considers me righteous when I am not is unbelievably amazing. The fact that he doesn't count my sin against me when he should is unbelievably also amazing. To think that our failures, our sins, are not counted against us. It's just amazing. In fact, to think that as far as the east is from the west, so God has removed our transgressions from us. This, this idea of being forgiven and cleansed and being put into a new spiritual position and that God has forgiven your sins both past, present, and future that he has declared over you eternally not guilty is so radically scandalous that some people even charged Paul with saying, well, then just keep sinning so that God can keep giving you grace. In fact, some people suggest that you're not really preaching the gospel in its fullest extent Unless people begin to think you're saying, so you mean God's grace is, <clears throat> is so big and so large and so expansive that you can just keep sinning and, and grace will just keep abounding? Some people suggest that if you're not, if someone isn't thinking that, you may not have grace as big as what it needs to be. And then Paul responds with all of Romans chapter 6 of, no, you can't, you can't, you can't live that way. You, if you live that way, you don't understand what God's grace is. But the point is that grace is so revolutionary, it is so radical, it takes over at such an extent that to think that you have been declared righteous and forgiven, that all of what you have done, past, present, and future, that is a stunning, liberating reality. That's why, hopefully, you sang a few minutes ago, Christ is enough for me. It doesn't just mean enough for your past. It doesn't just mean enough for your present. It also means, and he will be enough forever for my future. No matter what happens to me, and no matter what I do, Christ will still be enough for me. Aren't you glad God has dealt with us this way? Aren't you grateful that God has been kind to you despite what you deserve? Aren't you grateful that no matter what you've done, no matter what you did last night, there's still forgiveness, there's still cleansing, and that God is for you and not against you? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. So Abraham, David, third circumcision. Verse 9 Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Once again, we're back to this issue of how do Jews and Gentiles relate to this gospel. And Paul is essentially arguing here that this faith-based righteousness 
supersedes or is more foundational than any other spiritual rite or observance. So circumcision was the ultimate sign that you were a part of God's covenant community. And it was an incredibly big deal. And yet, Paul says even that does not trump faith. Look at verse 10. How then was it counted? Let's back up to verse 9b. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So was, was Abraham declared righteous before or after he was circumcised? And then Paul answers the question in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision... Or, excuse me, he answers it in verse 10. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, the reason that Paul says all of this is because he wants you to realize that as important and as valuable as circumcision was in the Old Testament in terms of it being a sign and a seal of being part of God's covenant community, it wasn't ultimate. And why does he need to say that? Here's why. Because human beings take signs and symbols and we make them ultimate. You ask somebody, are are you a Christian? Yeah, I grew up in a Christian home. Great. But that doesn't, that's not, that's, that's great, but that's not ultimate. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I was baptized at age 15. Great. But but that still isn't ultimate. We tip towards these external signs and rites and we make them the badge, if you will, of our righteousness. And why do we do that? Because the tendency of our human heart is to tip towards works. That's where we go. That's where all other religions of the world go. And what Paul is doing here is establishing faith as more foundational than circumcision. It would be hard to overestimate the spiritual, emotional, and national significance of the rite of circumcision in the hearts of the Jewish people. And yet what Paul says here is faith was what saved Abraham, and it happened before he was circumcised. Now explain why he says that in a moment. Let's review. So we have Abraham, who was counted righteous by faith. We have David, who God could have killed, but God covered his sin um, and didn't count him as sinful as what he really was. And circumcision, that happens after Abraham is declared to be righteous by faith. Why is all of this here? Well, we have a purpose statement in verse 11. And the purpose is to save Jews and Gentiles. He says, the purpose was to make him, that's Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So the idea is that Paul wants to tell the Romans that God's desire in this faith Not circumcision, not works, righteousness is to expand the powerful extent of the gospel. Remember what his goal is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16? That he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? What's the next word in that text? It is the power. It's the power of God unto salvation. When... The gospel comes in its full force with faith alone and grace alone, and you know that your works don't work, 
When you know that your activity actually is the problem, it changes absolutely everything and it becomes, this gospel, a powerful force for you to change because God, by His Spirit, now dwells in you. You're a different person. The old is gone. The new has come. This powerful gospel has the ability to change the hearts and minds of individual people and to change a family and a church and a city and a nation and the world. And the ultimate aim, secondly, is that Paul wants to bring the gospel to Spain, a group of people who had not heard the gospel yet. And so what he wants them to understand is that this gospel of faith, not works through that creates righteousness, is that which has the power to save anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free. And the whole message of the New Testament is this, no matter who you are or where you've been or what your ethnicity or what you did last week or what your past is like, that there is forgiveness and healing and mercy and grace if you will simply stop doing the ta-da, and instead saying, I need your help, Jesus, I'm done with me. Would you please take over my life right now? Take over, I'm done. I trust you, because I can't do it. And you are then a child of God. And, And everything about your life changes. Doesn't mean everything's perfect. In fact, that's not the case at all. It means you now see life through a very different lens, but you still live in a very broken and fallen world. God's aim in counting people righteous by faith in Christ is to extend His glory over the whole world as people from every tribe and nation and tongue put their faith in Christ. God's aim in this Gospel is to rescue helpless sinners who are powerless to save themselves and fully convinced they don't need saving. God's aim is to save people by counting them righteous as they believe in Him, not counting in the work that they have done for their own salvation. His aim in writing Romans 4 is so that you will see this and receive Him today. Or, having received Him, that you will see the world through this lens and weep over the reality of a world that has no idea that works don't work. A couple, I think it was two weeks ago, we were reading in our family devotions in the Gospel Primer, And Milton Vincent said this, The more I rehearse and exult in gospel truths, the more there develops within me a corresponding burden for non-Christians to enter into such blessings. Easter's only two weeks away. Coming down from the heights of gospel meditation, Paul's heart is devastated by a burden for his fellow Jews to experience the saving power of the gospel. Over time, my joy in the gospel will become increasingly tinged with grief, and this grief-stained joy will lend a God-inspired passion to my ministry of evangelizing the lost. Paul's aim is not just to help help us to see what happened to us in the gospel his aim is to help us to see it, help us to see what happened to us in the gospel so that we can see the world that is so desperately in need of the gospel to be able to see the world that is 
lost and broken and then to take this gospel power of not performance living but promise living and take that and do what the gospel has done throughout the history of the world and that is to transform people and homes and marriages transform work and singleness transform suffering and hardship and even transform death so that the world would look at these people and go what in the world do you believe in and our answer is christ and him crucified he is enough for me that's what paul wants to see happen so your neighbors need to see There are regions of our city that need so much help. There are areas within our country that are just crying out for this gospel help. Got a text last week with a picture of a house in the Brookside neighborhood that is a part of a ministry that's been formed through some people in our church called Covenant Community Housing. And what they do is they purchase homes in the neighborhoods in the Brookside area, and they um, refurbished them. And this house didn't look like this when they bought it. And they take these homes and then make them available to women who have gone through heart change, a ministry of discipleship and mentoring. And last week, a woman named Danisha moved into that home, and there she is signing her covenant community housing agreement. She had to save $900 to cover her first month's rent and a deposit. Moves into this house. She's a graduate of Mother's University of Heart Change. She was able to get her GED. She's now a certified nursing associate, which is why she has that um, little uniform on there. She's working full time. She's engaged to be married to a man named Pat and is being mentored in their premarital counseling by one of our elders. Friends, this is what the gospel does. When belief in righteousness sets in, not works, it not only changes how you see yourself, it changes how you see everything and everyone around you. And what Paul wants us to understand is that belief, belief or faith is the essence of the Christian life. It means that you enter into a relationship with Jesus because you have believed in him. You stopped believing in yourself and instead you've started believing in him. But it's even more than that. It means that you continue believing all the rest of your life. In fact, if you look at what it says in um, verses 11 and 12, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's us. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk, and this little phrase is awesome, in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What footsteps is he talking about? He's talking about that you're walking every day in faith, in belief, in belief, in belief, that you are believing and believing and believing and believing, and you keep believing and you keep believing and you keep believing and you keep believing. It's as simple as when you open the Word tomorrow morning, and you have in front of you English words in a book, and yet you know what you have in front of you is different than any other book in your house. So last week, my family and I were 
in Washington, D.C. on a little bit of an educational vacation, and we're standing in the Lincoln Memorial, and with a bunch of other students, we read aloud the Gettysburg Address. You know, four score and... Is it seven? Okay, yeah. Apparently I missed that one. So anyway, so four score. And so you, you can recite the Gettysburg Address from memory. It was, it was moving to, to read through that Gettysburg Address. But you know what? As eloquent and as historical and as significant as those words are, the Gettysburg Address is not the Bible. And when you open the Bible and you're reading God's Word, you come to this book with the belief, this is the Word of God. It is light to my feet. It's a lamp to my path. It is a sword that can cut to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow. This book can be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of my heart. This You come to this book with belief. When temptation comes across your way, the enemy is asking you to believe a lie. You need this. You want this. You'll be whole if you have this. And in contrast to that, the Bible says, No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted more than what you can bear. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And you believe that promise and you say no to the temptation and say yes to righteousness. And what is in the center of that? Belief. When you've messed up and you've got to ask for forgiveness... What is the hope that there is going to be cleansing and restoration? The hope is this, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You bank your heart and your life and your future on the promise of God. And the Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and says, Wives, respect your husband. It means, when it says children... Obey your parents. These are promises built within the fabric of the Bible and we are called to believe them. Or when hardship or suffering comes and you hear that the Bible says all things work together for good and you've got to decide, are you going to go with what you see or with what the Bible says? Are you going to go with how you think life is or are you going to go with what God says you enter into a relationship with Christ by virtue of belief and faith and you live every single day in the footsteps of faith following just like Abraham when God said look to the scars your your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and Abraham had no evidence no children no reason to believe that was true except God said it and therefore he believed it and the Bible says in that faith in God and his promise Created righteousness. So if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you today, this very day, to say, in effect, Jesus, I'm done trying to run my own life. I receive you. I turn from my sin and I receive you as my Savior. I believe in you. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I wonder what is it that God would want you to believe afresh and anew today? What is it that you need to believe? What is it that God may be asking you to believe again? Belief creates righteousness because belief is at the center of what Christianity is all about. It's the center of what the Bible is all about. And it's the reason why at the end of eternity or at the end of our lives as we're in eternity, God will be this, the 
the central reality, not us. There will be no tada in heaven. There will only be God. Because belief created righteousness, not my works. Let's pray. Father, we um, sometimes feel like a man in the Bible who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I, I pray that you would help those of us today who need to believe certain things because of whatever happened last week or whatever happened in the last month or the last 10 years. And Lord, I pray that whatever way that you're speaking today by your Spirit, that we would respond and say, Lord, I need to believe you. Maybe for hope for a marriage, believing that prayer does work, believing that giving money away is the right call. Lord, whatever it is that you say about belief today, would you help us to respond to you? And then, Father, there's, there's got to be a few who today need to move from death to life, from unbelief to belief. And today, would you help them to see and savor the beauty of Christ, and perhaps even day to become a child of yours? Let me pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.